0: Celebrate the progress that you've already made. Visit BetterHelp.com Curiosities today to get 10% off your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P dot Curiosities. Welcome
1: to Aaron Menke's Cabinet of Curiosities, a production of iHeartRadio and Grim and Mild.
0: Our world is full of the unexplainable. And if history is an open book, all of these amazing tales are right there on display, just waiting for us to explore. Welcome to the Cabinet of Curiosities. The Revolutionary War was not the only major conflict between the United States and Britain. After America won its independence, it still faced an uphill battle. The British and French began imposing harsh economic sanctions on the United States during the Napoleonic Wars. The Royal Navy also forced American sailors to abandon their ships and serve England instead, a practice known as impressment. In retaliation, the U.S. refused to trade internationally, an act that impacted its own fledgling economy. Average Americans were angry as farmers and factory owners were unable to sell their wares overseas. On top of all this, the tribes of the Western United States were being supported by the British against American expansion. It's no wonder that in 1812, everything came to a head and led to a new war, the aptly named War of 1812. Once again, America was up against the British, who now had help from the indigenous tribes they were assisting financially. And it didn't help that there were still parts of the U.S. that were dependent on the United Kingdom for support. The newly independent America had its work cut out for it. Two years into the war, while both sides were vying for claim of the West, the Royal Navy was busy taking over the eastern coastline. A 74-gun ship known as the HMS Bulwark invaded the town of Situate, Massachusetts in June of 1814. Sailors and fishermen from the nearby town of Cohasset formed a militia to fight the threat head-on. They numbered fewer than hundred, but they were ready. On June 16th, word spread of an attack on Situate Harbor. The bulwark had already sunk several ships, with barges full of soldiers headed toward the town to bring the fight to land. By the time the British reached the harbor, though, the militia's numbers had grown from 94 to almost 1,200, and the British, seeing that they were clearly outnumbered now, retreated back to their ship. The battle was over before it had even begun, and without a single shot fired. Things calmed down for a while after that, and by September, the militia was not as vigilant as it had been over the summer. The British felt the time had come for them to try their luck again, and this time, nobody saw them coming. Another 74-gun ship entered the harbor. Some reports claim that it was the Bulwark, back for revenge, while others suggest it was a different ship called the La Hogue. Meanwhile, in situate, Simeon Bates and his family were tending to the town lighthouse. Bates had been made Lighthouse Keeper in 1811 and had lived there with his wife and nine children ever since. Simeon was a God-fearing man who had served during the Revolutionary War years earlier. On the day the British ship came to Situate, Simeon and seven of his kids were away from the Lighthouse. His daughters, Rebecca, who was 21 at the time, and Abigail, 17, stayed behind with their mother. They looked out on the water and saw the ship in the harbor, with smaller boats full of British soldiers heading toward shore. Rebecca knew her way around a rifle and probably could have picked off one or two men from where she sat, but she worried the remaining soldiers might destroy the town as payback. And the girls were too far away to warn everyone from the impending attack. Instead, Abigail and Rebecca decided to fight back with something else entirely. Music. Rebecca picked up her fife while Abigail fetched her drum, both of which had been left behind by some of the militiamen who had come to the lighthouse over the summer. They had taught the girls how to play several songs during their stay, a talent that was about to come in very handy. Abigail and Rebecca left the lighthouse on a mission to save their town. They found a spot near the harbor where they could remain hidden from sight and started playing Yankee Doodle as loud as possible. The sounds of the fife and the drum filled the air. The British heard the song as they were approaching the docks, and as the girls had hoped, it filled them with dread. The men believed the militia had arrived to fight back. Not wanting to engage them and risk heavy casualties, the Redcoats turned around and rode back to their ship. This time, it wasn't a homegrown militia that had scared them away. It was an American army of two, and all it had taken to ward off a few hundred troops was a fife and a drum. A musical event that gave a whole new meaning to the term, British Invasion. to start living yours. Let's get into it.
1: In the 1980s and 90s, New York City needed a tough cop like Detective Louis
0: Scarcella. Putting bad guys away. There's no feeling like it in the world. He was the guy who made sure the worst killers were brought to justice.
1: That's one version. This guy is a piece of shit. Derek Hamilton was put away for murder by Detective Scarcella. In prison, Derek turned himself into the best jailhouse lawyer of his generation. And the law was my girlfriend. This is my only way to freedom. Derek and other convicted murderers started a law firm behind bars. We never knew we had the same cop in the case. Scarcella. We gotta show that he's a corrupt cop.
0: They can go f- themselves.
1: I'm Steve Fishman. And I'm Dax Devlin-Ross. And this is The Burden. Listen to new episodes of The Burden on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. And to hear episodes one week early and ad-free with exclusive bonus content, subscribe to True Crime Clubhouse on Apple Podcasts.
0: It killed King Edward VII in 1910. Although the British weren't sure exactly how, they remained convinced the cosmic phenomena had something to do with his death. And they also believed that it was an omen of an impending German invasion. And they weren't the only ones in a state of panic. The French swore it had caused the Seine to flood. A letter to the Royal Observatory warned the event would cause the Pacific and Atlantic Oceans to change basins. South and North American forests would be swept away. Sharks, whales, ships, and houses would go tumbling together across the deserts and oceans in a mass of chaos. The event in question was Halley's Comet, a ball of volatile ices and dust visible with the naked eye. Named after Edmund Halley in 1758, the periodic or short-term comet can be seen just once every 75 or 76 years. And in 1910, Earth passed through the tail of the comet. Scientists using spectroscopic analysis found that the comet contained the toxic gas, cyanogen. In turn, French astronomer Nicolas Camille Flammarion claimed that this gas would penetrate the atmosphere and potentially snuff out all life as we know it. People panicked. They bought gas masks. Con men made a hefty fortune selling anti-comet pills and anti-comet umbrellas. When other world astronomers wrote that the gases were so diffused that they posed no threat no one listened. Throughout times, comets have caused panic. Ship captains were said to be swayed off course, and cultures believed in cause and effect when it came to such events. If a war or prominent death followed within the year, the comet was an omen, a sort of hindsight bias, if you will. But in 1910, people got really creative. In China, people believed the comet would cause war and that the dynasty was about to change. People didn't open their doors on some days. Others abstained from water, fearing that the gases had rained down on the Earth. The New York Times ran a headline story about Flammarion's theory of deadly gas. A single grain of the potassium salt from the comet's tail was sufficient to cause instant death, uh, according to the paper. Though the Times also noted that leading scientists disagreed with the French astronomer's hypothesis— The article caused people to ransack stores for supplies and gas masks. Citizens sealed up keyholes to prevent the gas from entering their businesses and homes. And a cult called the Sacred Followers in Oklahoma attempted to perform a human sacrifice to stop the comet. Fortunately for the young girl involved, the police stopped them first. In Texas, two con men were arrested for selling sugar pills that promised to prevent death by comet, But customers stormed the police building and, despite having been conned, demanded the men's release. Con artists sold anti-comet umbrellas to people who were convinced that what stopped the rain would surely stop a speeding comet. And I'm sure there's a joke in there somewhere about a T-Rex trying to hold up an umbrella, but I'll leave that one for you to sort out. In California, a religious prospector nailed his feet and one hand to a cross— and despite the agony, insisted rescuers leave him alone. In Georgia, the Atlanta Journal and Constitution claimed that the cloud cover had surely saved Atlantans from near death. Those who didn't buy into the superstitious hype clamored for telescopes and other viewing devices. They purchased tickets that allowed them to stand on hotel rooftops to be closer to the comet and get a better look. Of course, life on Earth did not end. Well, except for one man who accurately predicted his own death. He'd been born right when the comet passed through in 1835. He jokingly told reporters that God looked at him and the comet and said that they'd come in together, and they might as well go out together too. At least, that would be his wish. And uncannily enough, he passed away on April 21st of 1910, when the comet was once again passing the Earth. And that man? Mark Twain. Thank you.